I think I'm having an art attack. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Art Attack with your hosts, Bua and Lizzie Dastin. Lizzie and I bring you the truth about art, at least our truth about art. And as you know, probably more than anything, art is completely subjective. We are offering you two very informed, different viewpoints. Oftentimes we agree on everything. Sometimes we don't agree on everything. Lizzie seems to be a little bit more grounded in liking everything. <laughs> as where I'm a little bit more honest. She's a little bit more of a liar. I tell the truth. A diplomat. Oh, that word. <laughs> <laughs> Lizzie lies and I give it to you real. No, I'm kidding. Lizzie is... Uh, we just have, I think our taste, would you say percentage-wise, we overlap in terms of similarity, similar tastes versus... Versus different. I think that our schemas are just different, that that's the biggest deal, that mine is much more an embrace of concept and ideas, and I think you are quicker to celebrate process and skill. And I think that's because you're an artist and I'm a historian, and so that yeah. I think is the underlying. We should change the name our... of the podcast to "You're an Artist, I'm a Historian." Ooh, I mean, you're a historian <laughs> too. I'm definitely not an artist, but you, I think, have both. I mm-hmm. very much am rooted in one. I do have both. Yeah. You do. I know. It's so mm. annoying. God, but I both. percentages. Well, it feels weird to be an art historian and an artist. What's it like? Can to I have just so get many an hats? honorary PhD from, <laughs> like, I, I don't know, somewhere small like Yale, or perhaps. Harvard, Well, you could pay for a degree at USC, which I shouldn't say because I'm actually getting a doctorate in... (laughs) What do you mean you could pay? Oh, because... Right, the scandal. scandal But I'm getting a degree at USC and I'm not paying for it, so that was mean. (laughs) But percentage-wise, maybe 75% we overlap. I'd Eh. say that's right. Yeah. I'd say 75 to 70. I was actually thinking 77.3 felt right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Thanks for the specificity. We have a write-in from a <laughs> fan. We, by the way, if you guys listen to the show, write a review on iTunes, wherever you can write a review. I don't think you can write a review on Spotify. I have no idea. I'm not technologically even in this world. But I do know <laughs> that I read the reviews. Some of them amazing. Some of them are terrible. But who cares? <laughs> Just write a review. Give us five stars. Write a nice review for once. No, I'm kidding. Or not a nice review. Any review is well, so appreciated because it means that you're listening. And the best kind of art is art that provokes thought and discourse. And yes. if our show provokes something from you, even if it's negative and you hate us or you know hate Justin, Lizzie won't that's even, okay. Yeah, they're not going to ever hate you. That's <laughs> the weird. She already knows. Yeah, hate so, write something bad. I know it won't be about me. <laughs> I get indemnified by default because I'm the nice one on the show. Okay. I don't know how you became a German Transylvanian uh, Jew alcoholic. So Scott Woods writes in that he loves the podcast and he wants to know if any, which critics have a significant impact on how we talk about art today. He says it's a broad topic, maybe too broad. It is too broad, Scott. You're an idiot. No, I'm kidding. Oh, my God. Scott, that's a, actually, it's a good suggestion. Um, I think that when we take that suggestion, we should also include gallerists because in my opinion, and I think what Scott's getting at is, do the critics really inform the market? And that's an important question. 
Very important. Very I think, important. Yeah, what's underneath Scott's question about maybe art historical criticism Scott, is... you might not even know what's underneath your question, <laughs> but let me tell you the brilliance of your question, you not brilliant person. Let me tell you why you're brilliant. Go ahead. It, well, I, it was brilliant as you wrote it, but for me, unearthing a little bit more, I think you're asking about the relationship between people who create art and then people who promote it either through their written criticism, through their relationship as a dealer or as a gallerist. And so art is an ecosystem. Nothing is just an isolated event, a domain. And so a painter is only able to be in the zeitgeist with the help of critics and gallerists and dealers. And so let's talk about some of those significant exchanges. But... Just to get to the specifics of your actual question, the art historian who changed my life and just opened up my world Mm -hmm. is a professor and critic named Anna Chave. And so if you're looking for somebody to read, highly suggest her. She wrote an article on the Demzel d'Avignon that is pure philosophy. It was so gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And also she wrote on minimalists. And she's adding a gendered lens to a conversation that is all about the de-skilling of the art object. Is it going to be one of those things where our readers, our listeners, our readers, are we writing? Is this a Vanity Fair (laughs) podcast as well? I forgot. Uh, Do we have an article in the New Yorker? We should. We should. Uh, I know. But is this a suggestion where people are going to go and it's going to be heavy to get through? Like can the average non art historian read that or is it is it going to be a thicket of complicated words and and so full of penumbras and subtleties that people who are not in the world deeply won't understand it that is a really excellent question i think so much art criticism is clouded with huge words just for the sake of it and i, I do too and that's actually really disappointing to me because I think that the smartest people can say really complicated things in a way that anybody can digest. Yes, I can. But (laughs) yeah, so Anna Chave, no, she writes with a theoretical framework and it's really hard to unpack as I think so much art criticism is. Maybe a Carol Vogel is a little bit more approachable. But well, I, think, I don't want to. I don't want you not to suggest somebody. But because, I still suggest. But her. I think because I think there's plenty of people who are really deep into it and who can read that. But even for myself, I might not be. You know, super open to deep diving into that. I mean, yeah, maybe it's I dense. would. Have been, it is dense. It is dense. Yeah. Okay. But I do think that that is just the nature of the beast right now. That people think if I get really fancy and splashy in my language, then I'm going to razzle-dazzle people into thinking that they know what I'm saying when they really don't, because I really don't. Yeah, because sometimes it's fine to do that if it's real and it's coming from an authentic place. And sometimes it's cool to say, yeah, that shit's good because I think it's good. Like, I have a feeling. I don't even know what it is. It's intangible. It's a spiritus mundi troubling my sight. It just, <laughs> it hurts me. You know what I mean? That that kind of, I, I, that makes me feel itchy. It makes me feel, it gives me a tingle, you know, in my, in my right hemisphere, whatever. <laughs> you know, I, it, it's fine. That's fine too. It is. Well, I think that the smartest people make other people feel smart, not stupid. Right. And so much art criticism makes me feel dumb. You kind of make me feel dumb sometimes. Oh, though, but no. That's no, a terrible well, thing. I'm I've sorry. I've had a lot of people say that about you, but not in a bad way, in a Nobody stupid way. Nobody says I no, make kidding. them feel dumb. No, but uh, I can I talk about one person that I think really 
was the most important person in the last 80 years? Of course. Leo Castelli. I really believe that Leo Castelli, uh, who was a Austrian-born Jew, I think his name was Krauts. Krauts? I know it was not Castelli. It was not Castelli. <laughs> he wasn't Italian. He was like an Italian that grew up in Austria, and, and then he fled, and his parents died. His parents died uh, over there. They got, I think they were murdered. And Ileana, what's her name? Oh. Who's she? His partner. Oh. Yeah. Gallery partner or yeah. life partner? Life partner, then gallery partner. She went to go get remarried. Yeah, so Castelli, he is not a, a written critic. He didn't write about artists, no. but he, he, di- he, he anointed them. Yeah, he anointed them and thereby kind of dictated the culture. When he was young, he was given a Matisse. He, he, he married into a very wealthy family. He was able to uh, open up a gallery on the Upper East Side of New York si- uh, City in the 70s, uh, up in the 70s. And he initially had kind of the typical Kandinsky, you know, collection and then ultimately um, went on to having a home for the abstract expressionists, right? Like Pollock and all of them. Yeah, and he actually found Rauschenberg and Johns. And exactly, was but that was first, way later. Right, that was way later. But that, I think, is how we look back at his career as really championing these two men. And he sold them, and he had a wonderful working relationship with them, and he gave them room to maneuver creatively, which I think is really important, is to not see an artist and dictate, well, this is what you have to do. And that happens a lot with artists. And you mentioned Pollock, and Castelli did exhibit Pollock, and he did promote Pollock, but there was this other person named Sidney Janis who showed Pollock's work. And I think we talked about this earlier, but he went to Pollock's studio. This was in the last couple of years before Pollock's death. And the the figure was starting to creep back into the canvases. And Janice, who was so excited by all of the non-objective splatter paintings that Pollock had become very well known for and disruptive in doing, he was like, uh, let's have it be a retrospective. And so... He refused to honor where Pollock was heading, and he said instead, we need to just show the old stuff because that's where your innovation was. And so I think that that stymies growth. If a tastemaker is going to look at your new stuff and say, "Mm, let's go back to the old. And so there is a complex dynamic between the honesty or the vision of the person who's selling or promoting and the actual creative strain of the person who's making. Yeah, I I find that like going back to Costelli, he when he when he was pushing their work, it's just really about getting it out to the people who have the money to buy it, right? And I saw an interview with him where they were like, "Well, do you think that, you know, you can really corner the market or you can influence the way it is? Do you, you know, do you guys and he was like, no, but that's bullshit because, of course, they could. They they dictate the market. If you came through Costelli, you have to look at the amount of artists that came through Costelli's gallery successfully. First, you got the abstract expressionists. Then he pretty much finds or creates a giant factory with pop art with Warhol, 
with Basquiat, with... Johnson Rauschenberg. Rauschenberg, exactly. De Kooning, too. Um, no, I'm asking you. I don't, I don't remember if he was I think under, he um, showed de Kooning, Lichtenstein, he, for sure. He founded right. Lichtenstein. Like, or Ileana founded Lichtenstein. Um, but the point is that these artists were the artists of the time. And he kept making it bigger and bigger and bigger. And then he opens up a gallery in Soho. So you have the, you know, the Upper East Side clientele taken care of. And then you have the Lower West Side. The Soho stands for South of Hampton, uh, Houston Street. So then you have the South of Houston Street cool crew getting taken care of as well. Then you start to really dictate the market. And according to Costelli back then, the market was really dictated regionally. There was two places that were important, L.A. and New York. I think now it's changed, but back then it was really two markets. Yeah, very myopic, the West Coast, East Coast. West Coast, East Coast, that was it. And that's what he even said in an interview. I only concentrate on those two markets, you know, L.A. being more plastic and New York being a little bit more gritty and textured. Right, just like the culture, interestingly enough. And he is a culture changer in the he artists is. that he found sure. and excavated and then exhibited in this little rarefied gallery world. And so I think without him, who knows if we would even have these people as the direction of art that the United States was going in. I don't think we would. And what he did was, whether you like it or you hate it, uh, he created and he allowed this movement a petri dish to grow in and nurtured it and cared for it and had the right buyers to come in and he had the right mouthpiece to talk about it and he had the right history and quite honestly he had the money to support that and what i think costelli did which was very different and this is why the pop artists are so great is he had everybody on payroll so did you know that i didn't yeah no. so like if you if lizzie dasson was one of costelli's artists and you weren't going to have a show this year, you were still going to get paid. So a lot of times mm -hmm. people leave galleries. It's like baseball. You know, there's another team offering you more money or more opportunity. You go to another team. But with Costelli, he was the first person to actually pe keep people locked in because they were getting paid regardless. But that's even more remarkable of a choice because he's giving the artist the freedom to produce autogenously when they want to. Without, that was his point. Yeah, without the strain of a deadline. And so maybe right. that's why the work was at the level that it was. And I would say, you know, to, to Scott, who wrote in, you know, this is really important because it's those people, as much as it's the critics, because I think the galleryists are the critics by virtue of the fact that if they have you there, you're approved. If you're in the right gallery, you're anointed. So by default, you don't need anybody to write good or bad. Good or bad's great. Bad criticism is great in art two. Good criticism is great in art three. But <laughs> if you get somebody like a powerful curator, a Gagosian, then Gago you're done. If you got Gagosian, people can write the worst. Critics can write the worst stuff about you, but Gago because Gagosian has anointed you, you are. Gold. You're a golden chalice that everybody wants to take a sip from. It's absolutely true. And I do think that that bespeaks this constellation of the art world, that it requires the Gagosians, it requires the Anachaves, it requires yeah. everybody who is cohesively talking about you. And you could be saying negative things or positive, but it has to be buzzy. And a Castelli anecdote that I just remembered is that some 
artist was complaining, probably because his work wasn't selling, although I can't say for sure, but just was saying, oh, Castelli can sell a beer can. And Johns, Jasper Johns, then made a beer can sculpture and it's made to look like it's a found object, mm-hmm. an actual beer can, mm-hmm. when in reality it was painstakingly handcrafted to appear like it was mass produced. And he gave it to Castelli to sell. And Castelli, and Castelli did. did. Yeah. Right. But well, what I love about that one is that there are two beer cans next to each other. One is totally sealed and it's a full can. Even though we don't see the contents, we have the feeling that it's full of liquid. And then the other one has been opened and the can is a little bit more crumpled. And so one is open, one is solid and resolute. And at the time that John's made that, he was in a relationship, a secret one, a clandestine affair with Rauschenberg. And Rauschenberg was famously stoic. And so I think that that beer can is almost a synecdoche for his character. And then the open, crumpled, kind of worse for wear one was a synecdoche for John's. Do you think you're looking into that? No. Okay. That's a fact. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Well, that, so, so, you know, and here you have Costelli giving an opportunity to all these artists who, and Costelli still has galleries, by the way. And it's like, like even though he's, he's gonzo, his, his legacy is forever. And these people like Gertrude Stein, who are supporting Picasso and Matisse, these people like Gagosian, Castelli. Now, obviously, there's a there's a complete different upside for a Castelli and a Gagosian than there is a Gertrude Stein, perhaps, uh, because Gertrude Stein, I think, really loved the work first, and I think Castelli did too. Like, I think the most important thing was was I really love it. I really love art. I really love to do this. But at the end of the day. He's making a gajillions of dollars, and Gagosian is making ridiculous, ridiculous, ridiculous money. The entire art world and people's bank accounts are really, you know, being dictated uh, by by these people. And artists have careers because these people are making money off of them. You know what I mean? There's that's like that's why galleries take fifty percent or sometimes more. You know, because this is a this is a business. So the the curator can make you, uh, the gallerist can make you, the relationships really make you at the end of the day. And also the patron, because you mentioned Gertrude Stein, and she acquired out of love. And that's the kind of acquisition that I really like. People have asked me, well, who should I collect? I say, well, what do you love? And I understand that that's a little bit naive. That there has to be a savviness to a purchase as well. But ultimately, it boils down to what do you like? And the only kind of art collecting that I personally don't like is that Saatchi model, where Saatchi, Mm. he decided, and this was very financially rewarding, but he bought up all of the MFA students, all Mm. of their work, and put it in a storage, never looked at it, knowing that one of those people would make it big. And so being able to sell that one for a huge cost would able would allow him to justify the purchase of everybody. Did any of them become huge? Yeah, of course. The Saatchi Gallery is also one of the most equitable ways to find and sell your art. Anybody can put his or her work up. It's kind of like the Etsy for the fine art world. Right, yeah. So there's there's space for all of it. Personally, I don't... I don't like that because I'm a nerdy scholar and I want to show work that I think is meaningful. 
to me and to my students and to the world. And so just buying stuff, hoping that it's going to be a financial investment is not how I personally approach this material. But that doesn't mean that other people can't. So I love that there is so much complexity. And with patronage, you just have to think if you're interested in being a patron yourself in what what feels right to you and what your ultimate purpose in acquiring this art is. And to go back further from Castelli, we've always had these wonderfully meaningful relationships between the tastemakers and the the people who make art. There's Conviler, who was the first to show Cubist work. So Gertrude Stein, she was a patron of Picasso's and Conviler was a dealer of Picasso's. And Picasso did a Cubist painting of him. And that's always really fun to see when an artist will paint his or her patron. This artist that we talked about ages ago, Florine Stedheimer, she loved a guy named Henry McBride, who was a critic. And so she did a painting of him. Even as recent as Shepard Fairey, he did a work of this scholar, Jim Deitchend. And so I think that there's constantly this. No, and it's funny because you go back, you go back, to Costelli again, and Warhol painted Costelli. Of course. And then Warhol painted Ileana as well, his partner. Why haven't you painted me? That's what I was thinking, because you don't have <laughs> enough uh, influence to get me my DJ painting sold for $18 million. One billion dollars. One billion dollars. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. No, One day. I, but yeah, no. I, but I think that's what all artists do, right? But, of course, Picasso's famous story with Gertrude Stein is he painted Gertrude Stein and gave it to her, and she said, that doesn't look anything like me. And he looked at her and he said, I know, but it will. Oh, so that I was love a, that story. But isn't that dark, though? Doesn't that feel dark to you? It feels inevitable. Art is timeless. Art is also very rooted in the time that it was but made. So I love that. you're that. going to grow into this old, frumpy woman? Did you not take it as that? No, I did. I did. But what's the point? The leitmotif of cubism is painting the duration of time as collapsed in a single image. And so if he, he wasn't yet exploring those themes in full maturation. No, it's proto-cubism. Definitely proto-cubism and a painting that was a, it was a little bit more in his, uh, we're we're going on a tangent right now, but it was a little bit more in the Mademoiselle d'Avignon slash, blue period uh, painting where it was it was realistic, cartoony, but it had this otherworldly feeling to it. Like Picasso was able to really exist in that. You know when Picasso does those really weird short leg characters with those thick fingers? So it's like <laughs> yeah. kind of the beginning of cubism, but it has that Greek-looking faces. Like they look very, from, they look like they're from antiquity. And he's been able to take those two styles and collide them. He did that with the Gertrude Stein piece, which I feel is really cool because he's not doing it realistically. It's not like a Sargent or a Zorn, but it's very, it has a very academic feeling, even though it's weird. That's what I love about it. I love it too. It's interpretive. And so now we're at like 1906, 1907 for those two paintings. And cubism would be really articulated in 1911. So a few years prior, and he was looking at non-Western references. He went to to see Etruscan masks, which I think was 
the inspiration for the Gertrude Stein and then saw Iberian and African masks and those he used for the Demzel d'Avignon. So he is colliding lots of different traditions and he's creating something that I do think interprets reality rather than just reflects it. For sure. And I think that is some of the strongest painting is when you get that stylism injected into the work and you have a feeling of pathos as well. And I think that's, and I don't know if he was being proto-cubistic when he said that to Stein. I think he was, I think he was being dark and funny. Yeah, maybe. Which is where, you know, both works by the way, because it's like you will evolve into this person. But perhaps what he said was also there's, there's something important about you Mm -hmm. and there's something, uh, that, the world needs to see that perhaps you think is a a blemish on your physical qualities, but what I'm telling you is I'm going into the intellectual beauty that I think someone could read into this painting. Like we don't, you know what I mean? It's so, it's a, it, it, she looks really deep and lost in thought. Like in French you say, perdu dans mes, mes pensées. She's like uh. lost Say it again. <laughs> Perdu dans mes pensées. Qu'est-ce que tu veux me dire alors? <laughs> but I feel like that there's 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 a depth there. But and and I have myself uh, patrons who I'm very lucky for because patrons today, the people who really dictate the art world in some ways too, are corp- are corporations. You know, they're big corporations who are doing commissions for for lobbies, for statues, for murals for jobs. And I think those people have become the new di- the new patrons and if those people deem you cool then people go, "Oh, I want to get a piece from them because, you know, Microsoft got a piece or 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 Coca-Cola got a piece, whatever." And so I think there's a lot more factors today than just curator, gallerist, art critic. Uh I think it it's also corporate sponsor. That is a very interesting idea and I think you're totally right that now we're just taking the next iteration of patronage and what does that look like and how do brands collide with the art? So I think, yeah, that's, that's really smart. And just to wrap up, to give a couple other examples of this, this work or worlds in this dynamic, we have Alfred Stieglitz, who was a photographer, but also the first person to really promote photography. And he opened up a gallery called 291 in New York and also published a magazine called Camera Work. And that was the first time that photographs were shown next to paintings, also on their own, valorized for their inimical work and worth. And Stieglitz was the first person to show Picasso in the United States. So I think that shows a lot of insight too. And that was really the promotion of photography. And then we have somebody in the museum world like Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney, who was an artist herself. She was a sculptor. And then she got really interested in the Ashcan artists that were exhibiting in lower Manhattan. Mm. And she became friends with people like Robert Henry. And she acquired a lot of this art from the early 20th century. And then that ended up being the foundation of the collection of the Whitney Museum. And See, Henry, he photographed. You say Henry, Henry, but I always know it as Henri. I've never heard Henry. I think it's Henry. I think it's Henri. I'm pretty sure it's not. I'm pretty sure it is. <laughs> well, I mean, we can I've, ask him. I've, no, we I, can't. No, he's dead, but he was a fantastic Fantastic. Painter. Have you seen the painting that he did of Whitney? 
I mean, I'm sure I have because I know all of his work. And he is also a wonderful writer. And he writes a lot about, he was one of the great, you know, personalities of art during that time. But he's an important artist and, and he's a very uh, good writer. He is. And this one, this beautiful Odalisque style painting that he did of his patron and tastemaker, who ended up being one of the most important museum founders in the history of this country. It's so cool because she's dressed, she's kind of coquettishly leaning on her side. And we have a great tradition of uh, painting women in this Odalisque figure or this style. We have Velasquez and Manet and Titian. And, and Jean-Dominique Ang. Exactly, and Ang. But all of those examples, the women, they're nude. Right. And here, the woman has more of her own empowerment and she is embodied as a sexual person without actually being stripped of her clothing. So Scott Woods, I hope we've uh, answered your question. I mean, we've spent almost, what, a half an hour on answering this, but I think it's a, it's a very complex, it's a very good question, and it's really never-ending, and, and as you can see now by the corporate hand in the game, that there's a lot of moving pieces, and it's very complex, but it is important for patrons to really support the artists, especially when the gallery worlds are not perhaps accepting of those artists. So just buy what you love. I guess that's the, I'm going to end that with buy what you love and love what you buy. Peace.